The Secrets of Doctor Who is brought to you by the Star Quest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, episode 119. One day, I shall come back. And that's it. I've been renewed. It's when a Time Lord's body wears out, he regenerates. I'm a Time Lord. I'm not a human being. I walk in eternity. Bravehearty. Change, my dear. And it seems on a moment too soon. Unlimited vice pudding! Physician, that's wearing a bit thin. Fantastic. Allons-y! I am Scottish. I can complain about things. Ta-da! Should be fine. Hi, I'm Dom Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, where we discuss everything about the hit BBC series, Doctor Who. Today, we're discussing the 10th Doctor story, Human Nature. Joining me today on the panel are Father Corey Stika. Hi, Father Corey. How's it going, Dom? <laughs> Good. And Jimmy Aiken. Howdy, Dom. So, folks, remember to like The Secrets of Doctor Who on our Facebook page. This, we have a Secrets of Doctor Who Facebook page. And to retweet our shows on Twitter. Uh, leave us comments. That helps us to get the word out. And, and in, that engagement is the social media algorithm. It's funny business that lets uh, other people see the, the show there. And it helps us grow the audience. Also, if you have not yet done so, please, please subscribe to the show in iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher. Tune in your favorite podcast app on YouTube, where you can hit the bell to get notifications. If you have a Google Home or Amazon Echo device, you could simply say, play Secrets of Doctor Who podcast. You have to use the uh, the, the start word first. I had to be careful. I didn't want to start up mine. Yeah, and yep. you need to use the word podcast so yes. it knows where to look. Right, so you say, uh, uh, Echo, play the Secrets of Doctor Who podcast, and it will start playing. So you could even listen there. So uh, wherever you want to get your podcast, you can get it. I am so looking forward to when they let us have fully customizable wake words for (laughs) our AI assistants. I I already know what one of mine is going to be. It's going to be because (laughs) that's a term from Larry Niven and Jerry Pornell's uh, Mode in God's Eye series. And in one of the novels, they actually have the equivalent of an Echo device that is named And so that's going to be one of mine. <laughs> that's good. Uh, I, uh, yeah. I, uh, and, and for if you've never read those novels, a Fionch is a uh, specialist from an alien race who is designed to become an expert in you. It's like their <laughs> PhD is in you. That's awesome. <laughs> I, I want mine to be K9. So uh, <laughs> that said, before we get started, I do have a request, folks. The series of Doctor Who is part of the SQPN, the StarQuest Production Network, the StarQuest Media. We are a nonprofit organization. Everyone who works on the, these programs, apart from me, uh, everyone's a volunteer. And we, we volunteer our time. And they volunteer uh, their money. It's a labor of love. And we're growing by leaps and bounds, which is a great thing. It's a great problem to have, but means we need more help. And we're looking... When, when, we say, when we say we're growing by leaps and bounds, unfortunately, at present, we don't mean economically. <laughs> right. We mean in terms of the number of shows we're producing for you and thus the workload. Yes. And that's why we need volunteers. Right. Exactly. Yeah. We are, like I said, small nonprofit, small in funding and small in numbers. So we uh, but we have many great shows. So we, we need some more help. And if you have any ability in audio editing, 
Um, if you know how to post things on a website, uh, if you know how to post things to social media, if you are interested in helping us produce shows, which is mainly organizing things behind the scene, making sure people show up where they're, when they're supposed to show up and getting people's email addresses and Skype handles and that sort of stuff. Uh, if you if you have any desire or ability to do any of those things for maybe one or two hours a week at most, um, I, I really, it, it would be sort of up to you how much time you want to spend on it. Please contact me uh, and let me know. We can have a conversation. It's not a commitment, but I could let you know what's entailed and maybe you'd be interested in helping. So if you could send an email to help at sqpn.com, that would be greatly appreciated. So uh, let's get into today's episode, which is the first part of a two-parter. Um, this week, we're talking about the first part. Next week, we're going to be talking about the second part. But this week, we're, we're talking about, it's called Human Nature. Um, it is, we're still in season three of the of the uh, rejuvenated Doctor Who ep- uh, series. So this is the Martha Jones season. Martha Jones season. And Martha Jones is the companion. This uh, aired, originally, this episode aired in uh, May of 2007. And um, it's the eighth episode of that third season. So we're kind of getting to the second. We're in the second half of that of that season. And Martha has just at this point become like a regular, regular companion and has gotten her TARDIS key and everything like that. Exactly right. Last episode she did. Yep. By the way, the fact this is a two-parter uh, means that it it's interesting for comparison to a lot of classic series which were four parters but the episodes were half as long and so this two parter is about the same length as a classic uh four parter in terms of runtime and that makes it interesting to compare the different way that television was produced and that the show feels now versus how it felt back then one of the thing even with a comparable running time th- this two-parter feels much faster paced and more intense than a classic show which would be more relaxed there's definitely a lot more going on in this episode than there would have been in a classic who serial it's interesting if you go back and watch tv from the 70s and the 80s how much slower everything took you had scenes where just like there was so much time where nothing is happening except like a long shot of something and that just would not happen today uh yeah you're right it's very interesting to see that Another interesting point of comparison with Classic Who is the way British history is dealt with in this, because any country, every country in the world is made up of sinners and we all everyone's country has shameful things in its past. And there's a question in a time travel show of how do you approach those things? One of the things that Doctor Who has done is it's kind of taken different attitudes um, over the course of time towards British history, being a British show. Um, back during the early days of Doctor Who, it didn't try to glorify um, things in British history that were problematic. Like recently, we did an episode on the Highlanders, which is, you know, dealing with uh, the um, the conflict between Scotland and England a couple hundred years ago. And since they're both part of the United Kingdom now, we know who ended up you know, winning that. (laughs) And, and, and so there's, but there's still a lot of Scottish viewers. And so this, that was kind of a tricky thing. And it was interesting in the Highlanders, how, um, how it was kind of nonpartisan in its approach to this event in British history. And then also recently we did um, what we did uh, Kenda, which contains a parody 
of British colonialism and um, and specifically the settling of Australia, apparently. And so that in that it took a, a satirical approach that implies some criticism um, of of it, but it did it in a, in a sort of comedic way. Here in this episode, we're looking at the events leading immediately into World War One, and we even see flash forwards to World War One, and it's much more critical of of you know the violence that was present in 20th century conflicts and that the 20th century became famous for, even though there's loads of violence before the 20th century. The 20th century, actually, by historical standards, was quite peaceful. Um, but, uh, but we have a much more realistic and kind of cold eyed stare at these events. And yet there's still an element of heroism and a recognition that sometimes these things have to be done. And so in this two parter, we have kind of a, it's, it's not schizophrenic exactly, but they're kind of showing us both you have both pacifist elements and realist elements in this, and they kind of sit next to each other a little uncomfortably, given that the modern television sensibility is to just go pacifism, pacifism, pacifism. Right. And one thing I, I noticed is, you know, we had talked about the show, the, the last season uh, episode of Rosa, and we criticized, and I think rightly, uh, kind of the heavy handed nature they dealt with the racial issue this one seemed to have a much more even nature to that where racism was a part of this you know yeah you know, really uh, martha uncomfortable was, Mar- yeah martha was was uh talked down to because she was darker She's skinned black. but they also made it clear that she was less first of all because she was a servant you know, for these these high highbrow students and professors and everything, she was a servant first. It didn't matter what her skin color was. The skin color was just kind of a second aspect yeah, the, right. to it. Jenny racism, was, yeah, also the, talked down to. Yeah, the yes. racism was subordinate to the classicism. Right. But I, I think that was a much more even handed way of looking at the race, racial issues back then because there was racism. It was a real problem. And, and even even the racists in this are not as one dimensional as they were in Rosa. Exactly. Right. right. Like, jo- Joan is a much more sympathetic figure, but she holds views typical of her time that of someone of her state and class of life. So, yeah, it, it, it doesn't excuse it, but it's certainly realistic and doesn't make her an evil person either. Um, but but it it highlights that. Yeah, I, 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 I like the way that they they highlighted the racism. They made it a part of the problem in that has to be dealt with in the plot. But it wasn't uh, overbearing in that. Uh, so that was that was good. Uh, one of the things, By the way, ahead. one other thing to know about this two parter is it's uh, a, we're entering an era now where the showrunners, uh, Russell T. Davies at this time, are starting to adapt stories from other Doctor Who media. So we saw an example of that in the first season with the episode Dalek. And this is another example of that. Human nature is um, based on a novel that came out during the period when the show was canceled. 1995. Uh, Yeah, the novel is also called Human Nature. And um, it was, I believe, a seventh Doctor novel where he becomes a human and you know, in there, not to hide from aliens, but to experience what it's like to be a human. 
And um, and so it's loosely based on that. But it's and this was the first time a novel had been adapted into a TV show. He's uh, Dr. John Smith, a short middle aged history teacher from Aberdeen, who's teaching at Halton School in Farringham, um, a school dedicated to producing military officers, which is a criticism I had of this episode, which is they did not make that clear that this was a military school. Right. Yeah. They, they kind of they they implied it or they, they they implied it. First of all, I mean, it was the imagery of the, the students marching with the, the the practice with the weapons and everything. And then the, the headmaster called them cadets, which is always a military term. Right. So the, the, it became. Yeah, it was once they were shooting gun live ammunition with with the guns. I mean, it became clear that some, there was not just a regular school. This is not something that happens at British boarding schools, as a matter of course. Well, <laughs> that confused me. I didn't know that. And so I thought, was this normal for the period that you had military training as part of your boarding school education? Right. Yes, cool. they should have. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they should have explained that uh, right off the bat. But back to that book there, it did feature uh, Joan Redfern was in that and, and some others in the Encounters Aliens and that sort of thing. So and, and it's written by the same writer, Paul Cornell, who wrote this, also wrote that as well. But it's basically what if the doctor forgot who he was and thought he was a regular human being? That's really the premise that we're dealing with, uh, sort of the, the, the thought experiment. You know, what would the and doctor he- be like? And hence the hence the title, Human Nature. This is the doctor exploring what it is to be human. Also, now, because of the shift to this being about running away from aliens, um, we get a really dramatic open yes. in this where oh, yeah. Martha and the doctor are fleeing into the TARDIS. We don't know what they're running from, but the doctor is really, really, really scared. And that's a great opening. Yeah, oh, yeah. It is. It is. And he, it introduces something called the Chameleon Arch which has the ability to change Time Lord DNA in, in every cell and make him into a human, including having one heart. So that sounds painful. Um, and yeah. we will see... Well, the, it looked very painful. Yes. <laughs> and we will see it again in the uh, upcoming episode. The ne- I think it's the next episode after um, the uh, Family of Blood. Or no, the Blink. No, that's Utopia. Down the line. Yeah, it's down the line. Blank. It's a couple episodes uh, called Utopia where the master has used it to hide himself among humans and has forgotten who he is. Now, it'd be interesting if this is if this chameleon arch is an offshoot of uh, regeneration technology. Mm-hmm. You would think so. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely plays with those themes in this episode. And he has the name John Smith, which has a long history within uh, Doctor Who. We've touched on it before. The third doctor yep. was known for calling himself John Smith. Also, it was the third doctor with whom the two hearts concept was introduced for the first and second doctor. It's implied that they only have one heart. Um, And so there have even been fan theories about do Time Lords only grow a second heart at some point in their regeneration. One of the things he's concerned with and he runs into the TARDIS that, you know, at the very beginning is he makes sure they that their faces were not seen by the aliens. But they're they're being chased across time and space by these aliens. So that we don't know why are they chasing him? And then he says that these the, the pursuers, they're about to die. So they just have to wait him out. And so why are they about to die? We don't we don't know any of this. This is all unclear at the beginning. And, and it's also the doctor specifically they're tracking as even though they haven't seen his face or Martha's face, they can detect his Time Lord DNA, I guess, across space and time him. and smell him. And that's why he needs to change his DNA so he won't be a Time Lord anymore. Because um, apparently he's the only one. Right. Except you are not alone. <laughs> well, except at some point in time, there were uh, the, the you'll find them. But what time you want me? The doctor puts his consciousness and apparently the 
uh, a, a version of the chameleon arch into the watch. Yeah, that can switch it's, him it's, back. this was a little weak. I mean, he needs the headpiece chameleon arch to become human, but then he doesn't need it. He just needs the watch to revert to Time Lord. Yeah, it. Yeah, and so uh, as he explains the importance of the watch um, and the fact that there's a perception filter on it to prevent him as human w- without his memories to, from seeing it, um, he wakes from bed. No, one thing I, I, I didn't get was I get so he why wakes he, up in he wakes up in 1913. In 19, yes, I'm sorry, in bed in 1913. I get why he has to change his DNA to prevent them from seeing him, but why does he have to lose his memory? Yeah, because reasons. Because story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. It, they they had a concept they they wanted to to go with, and they had to fudge into whatever yeah. that is. Okay. Needed to needed to make a little more fudge. Yeah. So exactly. That, Professor Smith, uh, Doctor Smith, whatever they're they're calling him, the school teacher, um, wakes in his uh, his room at the Far- Farringham School, and Martha enters. She's a maid. She calls him uh, Mister Smith, I guess. Uh, they have the paper. It's Monday, November tenth, nineteen thirteen. Which and he's um, got a different accent. Does he really? Yeah, his accent. He speaks differently as human John Smith than he does as Tenth Doctor. Is it a Scottish hmm. accent? No, it's not no. a Scottish accent. It's not his. It's not David Tennant's natural accent, but it's a di- it's a different English a different accent. English. Yeah, I think. I, and I, my ear is not good enough with English accents to detect specifically what it is. But it, I believe, it implies a different class, right? And and it, uh, and, well, and then they pointed out once he gets his Time Lord memories back, they point out. Joan points out, I believe, that he's not talking the same anymore. Well, and it is his personality to changes like there's still similarities in the personality but it it, it definitely changes he's much yeah, more he's timid and rougher uh, edge rougher and cooler yes he is well so as on the uh, accent uh calling on uh, our friend bennett our listener bennett please uh let us know what his new accent is uh that would be very helpful and, and its significance yes the uh, choir of uh, boys we hear singing a song after the opening, uh, uh, a, a hymn called To Be a Pilgrim. I don't know if there's a significance to that. It is It is common, and they refer to this in, um, in uh, Clara Oswald's time. It's apparently common even today, and certainly would have been back then, to have um, the opening of the school day with a brief worship service. Kind of like here here in America, until the 1960s, it was common to like have a Bible reading and the Lord's Prayer at the beginning of the school day, even in public schools. So we encounter some of the uh, the boys, the older boys in the school, uh, including Jeremy Baines, um, who will become son of mine in the family of blood. Uh, he's played by the actor Harry Lloyd. And if you, he looks familiar to you, uh, he has he played Vice, Viserys Targaryen in the first season of Game of Thrones. Uh, he died gruesomely, as almost everyone does in Game of Thrones. Uh, but if you're also if you're watching the Showtime sci-fi series Counterpart, he is Peter Quayle, which is interesting. He's he's very good in that. He's I thought he was very good in this. He's he initially comes across as a you know an unsympathetic upper class snob twit. Who, which is yeah, what he's supposed not, to be. Not, so he did a good a job of that. He's not, he's not a twit. He's a snob. Um, a twit would imply that he's an idiot and he's not an idiot. But uh, but he then becomes briefly sympathetic mm-hmm. as he's about to be possessed by the, a member of the family of blood. And then he's just downright creepy after yes. that. Yeah. <laughs> and they, they, and they did, that's one thing I really like about it is they really did the camera angles on the family of blood to make them just look 
otherworldly, especially the little girl, uh, which when little when little children become possessed in movies or TV shows um, that it's that's creepy to the extreme. And they that little little girl did a good job. They played it up. They played it up. Well, that's one thing they did very well on this episode. I think in the family of blood, he is the most effective. Um, And then the then the woman, the former maid, Jenny. And then the little girl who's hampered because she's so young as an actress, she's hampered. She is very creepy, but she's she's has limited acting ability. And the farmer guy was the the rich farmer was the least effective of them to me. Right. He got the la- least screen time, probably for a reason. One last bit on Harry Lloyd, the actor. He is the great, great, great grandson of Charles Dickens. Oh, little, little oh interesting. There. Yeah. So uh, we have nurse Joan Redfern, matron who is played by the actress Jessica Hines, who we will see again. She will be Joan's granddaughter, Verity Newman, in the uh, Regeneration episode, The End of Times, which we've already talked about uh, here on Secrets of Doctor Who. Uh, there's a uh, a funny uh, moment. So the, the, uh, the doctor, well, so in the show, they make a distinction. In the credits, they refer to him as John Smith for the entire time in the in this these two episodes where he is not the doctor. So he is John Smith throughout. So I will, I will call him both John Smith and the doctor at times. Uh, but, but you have to kind of keep track of most of this time. He is not the doctor. <laughs> I will, I will let you know when he comes to the doctor again. So uh, John Smith and Joan have this uh, budding romance. They're, they're, there's a flirtatiousness at the beginning. And uh, in fact, she, she says, mentioned something about going to a dance with him in the town, the dance, which uh, apparently the town has, one dance all year long. Well, well, that's I don't know that it's implied it's all year long, but there are these village fates uh, feasts where they will have events like this periodically in small towns in Britain, or at least they did. And they would do English country dancing and social dancing and stuff like that at them. And so it wouldn't be like in a big city in America where you have multiple dance opportunities every night of the week. It would be like, okay, we're we got an orchestra coming. They're gonna play on this night, and that's our dance this quarter or something well, like that. Well, this is I mean, this is kind of something you still see well out here in rural areas of, of America where we don't have the access to the clubs and the dance halls and, and things like that. So you do have big events once in a while where of course now it's not an orchestra, it's usually a DJ or something like that, or a live band, you know, like a four piece, five piece live band. But it it's more things like that, uh, where they're they're not common. You know, you don't have every weekend. You don't have a dance. You don't have a DJ setting up or a band setting up. So I I can understand it. Now, one thing I'm curious about is the date of the dance is November 11th, I, which of course we know that. as you know Remembrance Day or the other Veterans Armistice Day. Day, Armistice Day. Um, I wonder if. In Britain at the time, that was an important day, or if this is more, more they're just saying this is, yeah, more foreshadowing what comes after. And it just happened to be the day that the, the band was available to go to this little village. Right. Armistice Day, of course, is the, the day that the guns went silent of World War One in uh, November 11th, 1918, 1918 at 11.11 in the morning. Right. I almost said 1917, 1918. Uh, and so this predates that. This is 1913. This was a year before. Well, it's eight months before the war started. Right. And so it's probably it's 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 probably meant to be, like Jimmy said, a bit of foreshadowing. And we will we will see an Armistice Day celebration or commemoration at the end of part two. So it comes full circle in that respect. 
so Nurse Joan uh, talks about the annual dance and that John gets flustered and starts backing up and tumbles down the stairs. Um, <laughs> yeah. One of the things they do now, he's a history teacher, apparently, because he's giving a, a lecture on the Battle of Waterloo at one point to some students. Um, but he's he's they made him an absent minded professor, in effect. He ha and, and I wonder, is that meant to be an unintended side effect of of all the hacking at his memory? that the uh, Chameleon Arch did because the Chameleon Arch was meant to deprive him of a lot of memory. And it's like, oh, maybe he took a little too much. Well, and that's, and that they kind of, they kind of imply that because she asked, well, do you know how to dance? You know, before we go in, do you know how to dance? He's like, I'm not sure, you know, because so he doesn't even remember that he can dance or not. And actually he should because he's clearly educated. And at the time, if you had a good school education, you know, upper class, middle, high, upper middle and upper class education, you would have learned to dance in school. So the next scene we have, uh, Joan is, as the nurse, is tending to the, the, the cut on the doctor's head. And uh, Martha comes barreling in and gets scolded for entering without knocking. Um, and, uh, and then asks, you know, have you checked for a concussion? Because remember, D Martha is a doctor in training. She's a doctor. She knows much more than Joan does. But of course, Joan is you know no uh, i'm the nurse here and i know i i dare say i know much more about this than you do and you're just you're just a lower class servant what do you know yeah. by the by the way we might want to say a word about why they're here uh, while they're hiding uh the doctor has a line in the in the flashbacks to how this all started about the tardis will find us a place where we can fit in and will give me the knowledge uh that i need to fit into the time period and will help and then and give me enough residual awareness to get you settled as well but don't wander off right in fact he gives her uh, a bunch of rules yeah. to help or her. something like that yeah yes yeah, yeah. which we'll, we'll and, get to yeah and and so a bunch of those rules so martha flash forwards through the rules um and uh and and so they show us the video all sped up of him reading the rules to her and david Tennant had to ad lib a bunch of those and oh. so one of them, one of them later comes back in Peter Capaldi's time. One of the rules he gives Martha is to never eat pears. <laughs> yeah. oh, and and that becomes one of the last things on Peter Capaldi's mind as he's regenerating. <laughs> so right. I, I wonder if that video, that original video is available somewhere. That'd be funny to watch. Yes, it is. Nice. Apparently, he, they cut out the never eat pears bit because they're afraid it would uh, tell children not, you know, encourage them not to eat their fruit or something like that. As, you well, know, and then I think I saw on the, the, the TARDIS wiki that he actually eats a pear. Uh, in the later episode. On? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's funny. Um, so it, meanwhile, the, uh, you know, uh, Martha sticks around to, to tidy the room and to check on him while Joan is taking care of him. And uh, John tells uh, Joan about his, these amazing dreams he's having. Apparently the uh, TARDIS uh, overwriting of his memory is not quite holding. And so uh, he's having dreams and remembering his life uh, as the doctor. And he's writing them down in his journal of impossible things, uh, as Joan calls it. Uh, and which includes stories from his dreams and of of his of his real life and sketches Picture of Rose, uh, uh, Rose, and, and also three the generations, previous uh, regenerations, the first, the fifth, and, the sixth, the seventh, and the eighth Doctors. Now, Jimmy, I, I can't remember. I was going to ask: Is this the first time they've shown the regeneration? Well, it's not the in first New time Who, they've in New in, Who. It, I believe it's the first. Yeah, in New Who, it's the first time we've seen the uh, we've seen the previous regenerations. We've known about them. 
but uh, this was confirmation that the classic series is part of this timeline. And it's specifically, it's the first confirmation that uh, Paul McGann's eighth doctor, who appeared only in the 1996 movie, that that's part of this timeline, too. Yeah, because he, he shows right in the middle. He's right in the center there. Um, it made the eighth doctor canon uh, as much as doctor who has a canon. Uh, we see the mocks of <laughs> Balhoun, Autons, labeled as Plastic Men, one of the Pompadour clockwork robots, Rose, a Dalek, Cybermen, and the TARDIS, which he has labeled the Magic Box. Yeah, and it's interesting they would label the Autons as Plastic Men. At, because, that's kind of interesting linguistically because at the time, the word plastic had a different meaning. Right. Malleable. It, it, it meant malleable or moldable. So like clay, modeling clay would have been a plastic substance. Um, but it didn't mean the synthetic polymer plastic that it later came to be attached to. And so the idea of the autons is living plastic. You could say that, but it would mean something slightly different to a 1913 mind. Right. See, they would almost think more of a uh, like a shapeshifter would be a plastic yeah. person. Like, in fact, the hero plastic man. <laughs> right, right. Uh, Stretch Armstrong. And so, <laughs> which I had as a kid. So, uh, (laughs) yes, uh, Martha and Joan have a moment after they leave the the doctor's uh, office. And Martha basically tells her that uh, that she arrived at the school with John Smith and that because she used to work for the family. And she says he just sort of inherited me. And uh, Joan warns her that you sometimes seem a little familiar with him. Best remember your position, she says. Which would also explain why she's sometimes a little overly familiar because she has a long association with the family. And people in in America, and I don't know, maybe elsewhere, might wonder when she says, "I he sort of inherited me, does that have implications of slavery? And the answer is no. Um, you couldn't. England had abolished slavery quite a while before this. That's not what's meant. It was actually common. When you had longstanding servants and you had family members move and and one generation transitioning to another in a rich family, that they would, quote unquote, inherit servants from other people in the family. So that's what she's referring to. Yeah. So we switch to the dormitory where we have uh, Hutchinson, who is a. Pretty much a jerk like Baines is. The upperclassmen in this are pretty much all jerks. And uh, we have young Latimer, Tim Latimer, played by Thomas Langster, uh, who was also on Game of Thrones, by the way. I just mentioned that uh, another British actor. Hasn't, hasn't everyone been on Game of Thrones now? That's the impression I get. I mean, I've never seen the show, but I, I'm always hearing about, oh, and this person's on Game of Thrones. It's British. Game of Thrones for British actors is like Doctor Who for British actors. They all okay. show up there eventually. So, yes. <laughs> and I gather it has a high body count. So there are a lot of openings. They, they have. They always need new people. Yeah. Yes, a lot of open roles. Uh, so Tim, um, who is an underclassman who is apparently made to do all the dirty work for Hutchinson, and he Hutchinson throws his notebook at uh, Latimer and says, blasted Catullus. I want it done by morning. Uh, Catullus being uh, a Roman author. Yeah. And, and this uh, this is something that is a kind of a trope in uh, British fiction about boarding schools, that there would be these put upon younger guys who would be forced by the school bullies to do stuff for them, to do their homework and, you know, get things for them and stuff like that. Well, and you see that in Back to the Future series, you see that as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, American boarding schools, too. And and Tim Latimer also has one other interesting characteristic. He preternaturally knows stuff he shouldn't know. 
He apparently has a latent ability to read minds, I guess. And glimpse the future and things like that. And in the in the latter part of the second episode, they explain that he's basically a mutant that has a partially active telepathic pathway in his brain or something. So Baines is sent to go get some uh, illegally obtained alcohol for the the boys to drink. Beer. Yes, some beer. Yep. And then Martha, meanwhile, is with Jenny, the other maid. Uh, they're out at the local pub in town. And they she says she tells Jenny she'll only be there for another month. Right, because they, they're in hiding for three months. And, and, and once three months have gone by, um, now this doesn't quite work with time travelers, but um, yeah. <laughs> the idea is that if they wait another month, it'll be okay. They can leave. I mean, they're presuming that the, the, the family of blood that's tracking them down is in their time already and still hunting them and not, not gone off to another time. By the by the way, there's an earlier scene with Martha and Ginny where they're like scrubbing a floor. And this is, I think, the most racist scene. It's not the only racist thing in this, but it's the most racist thing. Hutchinson where, says something. Yeah. Yeah. One of the upper class schoolboys, as they're scrubbing the floor, one of them asks Martha, how with hands like those, how can you tell if it, if something's clean? And it's like, right. man, I want to punch this guy. <laughs> exactly. Oh, just like. <laughs> slap this man's face but Smug okay, little <laughs> yeah yeah I, I agree with you that's i mean it's design i mean because that martha is a companion now you feel defensive for her i mean companion or not you, you that no one should be treated like that obviously so uh, but but just but oh. it, it, it really I, I really feel they fit the characters because of course these are pampered entitled you know upper class kids and they feel like they can just spit on whoever they want so it fit the characters well it's it's not un you know it's not atypical for the time and that's part of the horror of this is that actually that comment could easily plausibly have been made at this time and absolutely that's very disturbing right so they see a green flash in the sky a streak across the sky john smith who happens by at the time just dismisses it as a meteorite and says oh it's much further away than it looks in the sky uh but martha she knows it's something. And so she runs off to Jenny tells her, oh, that looks like it landed in Cooper's field. So she runs off to Cooper's field where Baines is uh, finding the purloined, the uh, obtained, uh, the uh, illegally obtained uh, beer. Um, and he sees the ship land, but it's invisible. We we have this classic invisible ship scene where he yeah, walks apparently over. Apparently Wonder Woman owns it. <laughs> exactly. Or it's a <laughs> Klingon bird of prey, maybe. Uh, so yeah. <laughs> Baines wanders into the ship because, you know, he's apparently an idiot and he is a twit. And <laughs> he gets <laughs> gets possessed by the uh, by the son in the family of blood and comes back to the dorm uh, and is very sniffly. Uh, the, the sniffly oh, gets to me. Meaning, meaning he sniffs to detect things. Yes. As a hunter, he's like a bloodhound of some sort. Um, so Martha goes to visit the TARDIS, which is shut down in dormant in a cabin. So it's not in plain yes. sight. Yes. Uh, indoors. She uh, has a flashback to the beginning where the doctor hatched his plan. We find out that they're being hunted by the family of blood, which can smell him. So he's rewriting his body to become human. And there's there's interesting music I have in my notes during this scene where she's having this flashback to this very dramatic thing with the doctor. There's the music is fascinating in this scene. It's yeah. lighter and almost charming. It's kind of nostalgic well, at, at first. Yeah, at first it's very pastoral and peaceful and, you know, upbeat. And then it kind of changes. It gets a darker tone as 
the flashbacks go on. It, it, I, I noticed that as well. That was a really interesting choice on their part. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. It's subtle. It's complex. So we get his list of his, his instructions that he left behind. So, so he says, don't let me hurt anyone. You know, humans. Uh, basically, yeah. humans <laughs> Message are received. prone to hurt some people. Uh, two, don't worry about the TARDIS. It'll be on emergency power. Three, no getting involved in historical events. He, he actually says four, no three, which I just I want to believe is the Monty Python reference. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Oh. Don't, he says, don't let me abandon you. That's number four. Then she skips ahead to number 23, which is, if they find you, open the watch to restore me. And, and she's like, but what about if I see a green flash in the sky and a meteorite? Yeah, exactly. What if you're falling in love? Well, that comes later, of course. That's yeah. later. But, but yes, that's another one that the doctor could not have imagined uh, that being something that he'd have to worry about. We also learn who's chasing them or something about who's chasing them. It's someone called the family. Yes. And mm-hmm. not the Charles Manson one. <laughs> right. Although they'd be the family. Although blood. they're pretty similar. No, uh, fortunately, the Manson family didn't have time travel. Yes. Thank God. So uh, the, the, we shift to the doctor, John Smith. I was doing it again. John Smith and uh, Latimer uh, in the doctor's study or the, the John Smith study. Uh, just bear with me. Folks. Latimer steals this professor's watch. Yes. What is up with that? The whole plot of the of the rest of this episode and the next one depends on Latimer stealing the watch for no good reason. Like, why does he take it? Well, why he does hears, he... he hears the whispers from the watch because he's got that, you know, psychic aptitude and he hears the whispers of the watch. And so he picks it up and plays with it and pockets it and then pockets it. That's but see, that's the whole plot depends on this little turn and i don't know it's the, the watch becomes the macguffin that drives most of the rest of the plot right if the if the watch were in its place the 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 doctor would have you know been restored this would have been a one-parter yes and i i hate to say that that that's where this feels like a classic who because you can think of genesis of the daleks where they had half of an episode searching for the time ring that got misplaced and you know <laughs> right that could have been completely cut out just but they needed to extend the episode you know and that's that's kind of what this point feels like here with the watch so there's an interesting interplay or interchange between uh, uh, Smith, John Smith and Latimer, where he he tells you know Latimer, your marks aren't quite good enough. And Latimer says, I'm in the top 10 of my class. And he says, yeah, but you could you could even be doing better. You're hiding it. You're, you you what does he say? Um, no man should hide himself, which, of course, is he's doing yeah. right now, which is so what exactly. the doctor yeah. is doing. So he so Latimer pockets the watch and open. Well, first he opens it. And here's it calling to him and perceives the doctor's real self, uh, which once when the uh, the watch is open and we see the Artron energy coming from it, we then see Baines, now the son of the family of blood, sensing when the watch is open and then Tim pockets it. Yes. So we have this voiceover that the, we hear mother, it says, from, coming from the watch, Time Lord, hide yourself. And then we hear the doctor's voice. The secret lies within. I'm trapped. I'm kept inside the cogs. In the dark, waiting, always waiting, power of a time lord. So it it goes quick, and it's hard, a little hard to to perceive. And then later on, just after the scene, he opens it up again, and it says he opens it up and says, "You are not alone. Keep me hidden." And then, and infinite fire, burn with light, burn in time. Uh, that's uh, v- multiple voices say that. So it's interesting. The also, the watch later, calling to him later. The watch tells him, and this stretches out the plot more. The watch tells him it is not yet time. While the family is at large, is is at large. You got to keep me hidden and stuff like that. Right. 
So uh, the 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 uh, family of blood needs to build an army. So they apparently recruit animate scarecrows. Yeah, and they waffle on that later because later they're talking about we like three D printed these scarecrows, but they that's not how they set it up. It looks like they're just animating them. Okay, right? Because I'm thinking like, why are there so many scarecrows in this one town? It's like they've animated every scarecrow in England uh, to be part of their army. And they all look exactly the same. Yeah. Yes. They are very creepy, though. The scarecrows are very effectively creepy. And incidentally, this is not the first time the doctor has dealt with scarecrows in the context of regeneration. A lot of this is something a lot of people don't know. But um, so at the end of Patrick Troughton's time as the doctor, we have the 10 part war games. The Time Lords grab him. They start to regenerate him or we think they start to regenerate him. But there was this they had a Doctor Who comic going on at the time. It was like a couple of page a comic that would appear weekly in a newspaper or a magazine, I forget. And and since it was several months before John Pertwee's doctor came along, they just kept doing Patrick Troughton um, uh, comic strips uh, during that few month period. And so the doctor like was let go by the Time Lords and used by them as a kind of secret agent for a few months before in a in a strip called the Nightwalkers, they sent scarecrows. <laughs> to get him and regenerate him into John Pertwee. And <laughs> and so here we have this doctor regeneration themed, because you know, as a human, uh, themed two-parter with creepy scarecrows showing up to get him. I was gonna say, well, then in um, you know, Tom Baker just recently re- released a novel Scratch Man, and in the first third of it, scarecrows play a part as well, where these scarecrows can turn people into other scarecrows. Mm-hmm. Ooh, and scare, scarecrows are an effective horror symbol beca- and that have been used elsewhere um, because they lie in the uncanny valley. Uh, they are close to the human form, which is the point. Uh, they're meant to scare birds by thinking there's a human in a field. Um, but uh, they they are not fully human. So that makes them if you make them a little more human. So they start walking around and doing stuff. That makes them scary, not just to birds, but to humans as well. So and then we see a couple scenes where uh, Clark, the the, uh, the the who will be the father of the family of blood, and then the little girl are abducted by the scarecrows and off screen, they'll be possessed by the uh, the family of blood. I like how the little girl constantly has the red balloon. Yes. Just no matter what, she's got that red balloon with her. That's part of why she's creepy. I don't know if it reminds me of it, which is uh, <laughs> would have been, you know what I mean? Oh, the, yeah. The red balloon thing, because uh, that Stephen King's it was predates this episode. So uh, the, we have the shooting range. We talked about that before, where the uh, the schoolboys are firing automatic weapons, which is an interesting idea. Sounds like fun. Here we have another really uncomfortable period thing where one of the uh i guess it's the headmaster yes the headmaster uh, tells tells the boys those targets that they're shooting at on the range are tribesmen from the dark continent right right and at that point latimer objects and says they only have spears and it's like this bringing a spear to a machine gun fight is like yeah well then uh, the headmaster says yeah latimer takes it upon himself to make us realize how wrong we all are I hope, Latimer, that one day you may have a just and proper war within which to prove yourself. Like, man, yeah. they, like how very different, like before World War yeah. One, people viewed war and and, you know, the the value of 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 war. There was no glory in war uh, then or now, but people perceived there to be. 
But then Latimer sees a vision of himself, of his own death on a battlefield. And without context, it looks like he and this other schoolboy are about to die when a bomb is dropped on them. So the the watch is amplifying his natural ability, perhaps? Something's going on, yeah. Yeah, and then uh, because he's not paying attention, Hutchinson asks for permission to give Latimer a beating, uh, which the, the doctor, as John Smith, permission granted. Yeah, which is, of course, really uncomfortable for us as fans of the doctor. But I was wondering, I mean, this is I've I've I've, you know, I'm aware of some fiction about British boarding schools, but the idea of an upperclassman getting permission to beat a lower classman is that was out of my experience is like, did that kind of thing happen? Well, you know, I can imagine if the, you know this is a military school that discipline from upperclassmen to lowerclassmen would have been a part of their training, because of course, again, they're training to be officers, so discipline is a part of that. But, but even even as officers, you wouldn't say, "Can I beat this private here?" It would be like, "Can I perform corporal punishment or something right. like that?" Right. Yeah. Do, do you know this episode that like the school in both parts of the this this story reminded me a lot of the 1981 movie Taps. Do you remember that one? Timothy Hutton, a young um, Tom Cruise, George C. Scott. It was about a military school. Kids of these ages, you know, the uh, you know, from grade school to high school that was being shut down and then they rebelled and yeah, the I army surrounded that. it. There's a lot of it felt like a lot of similar elements were in that as well uh some of these these bits and pieces i just i got a real feel of that in this uh, as i was watching it so uh nurse redfern comes out she sees john smith participating in this shooting and she's unhappy she's clearly unhappy with him um and he says there's something wrong excuse me, i was just thinking about the day my husband was shot which is ouch uh yeah. a little bit we, we later learn he was killed in a battle and i think it was the boer war yes yep. Um, and in fact, he died in the Battle of Spy and Cop, which was uh, the, during the Boer War in South Africa in 1900. As I, I looked that up, um, and it, it's actually part of it, it's become part of um, British slang. A, a uh, the cop is 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 what they call a particular part of a soccer pitch where the people stand because mm. it's elevated, and that was the, the basis of the battle. Soccer or cricket? Football. Soccer. Okay. <laughs> Football okay. pitch. Uh, yeah. Um, I'm American, so I said soccer. <laughs> so uh, we have uh, this scene of the doctor and or John Smith and Joan walking through the village as she tells him about um, her husband and how he died. And, and here he redeems himself because, you know, she was originally attracted to him. Then she gets really turned off by the shooting. Now he redeems himself because he uh, he saves a woman and a baby from having a piano fall on them and thus saving their lives. And he does it in this Rube Goldberg way. He grabs a cricket ball from a little boy and like ricochets it off stuff um, yeah. using his fully human, but still time Lord complexity endowed brain um, <laughs> and, reflexes. To, uh, <laughs> yeah. and reflexes to, to save the woman and her baby. And, uh, and that, you know, now that he's Joan has seen him save lives, she starts to appreciate him again and refers to him like in his journal of impossible things, doing impossible things with cricket balls, which is a nice reference to the fifth doctor and his time floating out of a spaceship and using a cricket ball to propel himself back to safety. <laughs> right, right. Mm -hmm. Well, he's wearing a exactly. cricket outfit, too. Um, yeah. Yep. 
he says uh, every the men don't need war to pr- to prove themselves that everyday life can provide honor and valor in ordinary deeds which is you know kind of what we're seeing here with the that he's that the doctor living an ordinary life in which he he doesn't you know has valor in 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 an ordinary deed of helping someone uh, not so ordinary the way he pulls it off but you get the the sense of it um and she says um I find myself at a school watching boys learn how to kill. And the, and John Smith objects. Don't you think discipline is good for boys? And she says, well, does it have to be military discipline? If there's another war, which we, as the audience, we know there will be, uh, these boys won't find it so amusing. And, uh, well, Great Britain is, is at peace. Long may it rain. And then she says, well, in your journal, you said there will be a war next year. And so we have this re- revelation that's coming. Um, and uh, so it was very yeah. interesting. Also, her acknowledgement that you need military discipline in case of a war is like, well, okay, civis pacem parabellum. If you want to see peace, get ready for war. Right, right. Uh, so uh, the doctor and her, then we see them outside the village walking along a field. And they see a scarecrow and the doctor stops to fix it because, of course, now we're waiting for the scarecrow to come alive and start you know, throttling right. him or something. But it well, and it was interesting in this scene, though, he mentions the name of his parents. Well, I was going to get to that. Sydney so and Verity. She, she asks him where he's from and he says Gallifrey. And is that in Ireland? Uh, <laughs> well, it exactly must be what you yeah. should ask. Yeah, it must be. Uh, and then he says, Sounds my father. Like my father, Sidney, was a watchmaker from Nottingham, and my mother, Verity, was a nurse. And that's a reference to Sidney Newman and Verity Lambert. Yeah, Sidney Newman being the uh, producer who created the Doctor Who show, and Verity Lambert being the first showrunner. Yes, exactly. Uh, so a nice, a nice homage to both Sidney and Verity. And then he plants one on Joan. Yes, he does. This is... This is I one of the not the first, but one of the first romantic kisses the doctor has ever. That's a good point. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, scandalous. And then uh, let's see these. She says um, he calls her beautiful. At, uh, and then the doctor and then she says widows aren't supposed to be beautiful. I think the world would rather we stopped. Is that fair that we stop? And that's an odd line, I thought. Uh, it, it's an odd sentiment. You know, st- stop being beautiful. Stop reminding people of death and sadness. Like, what is it they're supposed to stop doing? Like, what is it she's saying the world is saying to widows? What do you think? Well, as a widower, I think she meant sort of stop existing, stop being present to others romantically, just kind of retire. And because it's when when people when people learn that you're you're a widow or a widower, Mm -hmm. they don't know what to do. Um, the, you know, they, they're, they want to say, even if it's been 20 years, I'm so sorry, you know, and, and, and that's the best people know how to do. It makes people uncomfortable. Well, it's, it's especially at, a, especially at a young age, because then people have to recognize the idea that death can come even at a young age. You know, people want to think of a widow or a widower as, you know, the old spinster who lived with her husband for 50 years and he died, you know, at the age of 90. And she's, you know, she's in her 90s. That's what people want to think of a widow as not someone who's in their 20s, 30s, 40s. We we have Latimer now with the watch again, and we have another bit of where he opens it and hears the voices. They say, uh, darkness is coming. Keep me away from the false and empty man. The last of the Time Lords, the last of that wise and ancient race, merge with the faces of men. All very cryptic. Um, and we have Jenny taken by the Scarecrows. Um, um, it's a family of blood, we're told. And they so they put together a human family of possessed bodies, a father, a son, a daughter, a mother. 
And they and I like how they like all turn their heads in unison and then sniff. Yes. Mm -hmm. Very creepy. But but it's another one of those things in Doctor Who and and a lot of uh, uh, science fiction, I guess, where we have these poor people, Baines, the little girl, Jenny, Clark. They've been killed. They're dead now. We we find that out that they have they're long gone. And we there's no sympathy for them, really. I mean, there's a moment where where um, Martha worries about what has happened to Jenny. Oh, she's gone. But, you know, we're we're now like these are the enemy. And it's uh, it's like with zombie movies. It's it's how uneven it is. Yeah, I think you have to do that, though, in that situation. Mm -hmm. These people are an imminent threat. And once you realize, I mean, you'll have time to mourn for your friend later. But right now that person is trying to kill you. Right, I get that. But just um, there are t in in Doctor, there are times when the Doctor cares about every single human being, and if one dies, he is vengeance, and, you know, embodied. And then at other yeah. times, he just you know he he moves on. Uh, mm -hmm. It's just it's uneven. I, I think it's, it's just it, yeah. it, it bothers me a little that that's how they they do it. He should he should be consistent in that. But you know, I guess people aren't consistent anyway in real life. Interestingly, the family of blood seems to be from a matriarchal culture because mother of mine. And by the way, I like the the way they refer to each other. They don't use names. It's like brother of mine, daughter of mine, sister of mine. Those are those are nice. Um, it has an alien feel to it with while still being recognizable. Um, but mother of mine seems to be the head of the family. And oddly, though, she's the last one to take a human form. And she then uses it to start talking to Martha because she knows she's got some connection to what's going on. <clears throat> and uh, and Martha almost blunders into telling her what's going on. But she starts to realize that Jenny may not be Jenny. And she quickly this is I love how smart this is, Martha. She quickly confirms because they're having tea. And she quick she quickly confirms that this is not really Jenny and not even a human, but one of the people they're running from by making these ridiculous food suggestions of what they could eat that no one would. And, and Jenny, not knowing what these foods are, just plays along. Oh, that would be great. Would you like some gravy in your tea? <laughs> How yeah, about some mutton exactly. or sardines and jam? Yeah. <laughs> yes. And then so she goes running uh, to to get the doctor. She knows that the, they've been found. She's going to go get the doctor, get the watch. And release him from whatever. So she bursts in, babbling about the watch. He makes now here the doctor makes a condescending racist remark to her. What is it? I'm trying to find it here. Oh, cultural differences. It must be so confusing for you, Martha. This is what we call a story, referring to his his journal imaginings. Yep. <laughs> and then she's like, "Oh, you complete." <laughs> Did you know is that racist though, or just classist? I, that could have been is easily been classist. You could see him saying it to someone who's you know she's uneducated. She's lower class. Yeah, she's lower class. She's not been educated like he has. I and took cultural differences to may maybe mean uh, race, but maybe in context it means class. It you could be like both. I mean, that's the thing is it could be both there because there's there's also cultural difference in classes, especially at this time. It, it is pretty condescending though, and you make you want to give Either him a, a good smack. Yeah, way. Very, well, and she does then slap him. Yes. So in the same scene. So. Yes. <laughs> she makes you want to slap him and she does. Uh, she's trying to snap him out of it. But uh, so she, he fires her. She throws her out and she goes running to the TARDIS. But on the way, she bumps into Tim, who has a vision of her in her 2007 clothes running in a London alley in 2007. Um, and I was, is this something that has happened already or will happen? That was a little unclear. I took it as a kind of jumbled insight into her true nature. Okay. Right. 
because it shows Tim as a kid in two, in 1913 in 20, 2007 in that alley. And she bumps into him there. So we have now uh, we, the, the village hall where the dance is taking place. Martha shows yeah, up. By the way, as a as a dance caller who was calling an English country dance just last night. <laughs> yeah. And in fact, calling a waltz. That waltz music is way too fast for the moves they're doing with their feet. Oh, yeah. Mis- mm. There's a mismatch in the soundtrack and the actual dance moves. And yeah. it just if you're if you're a, if you're a pro in this field, it just leaps out at you. <laughs> Even I could tell it was too fast for the way they were moving. So the family blood is, is rifling through the doctor's study looking for something to find him. And uh, and Martha comes running in and confronts Joan about what she must really know about the doctor. Like, you look, you know, something is off. Um, and then she show, she tr- triggers the doctor's memory by showing him the Sonic. Like, here, you know, you know this. Name it. Right. And that's when the the family so, blood shows up and uh, son of mine disintegrates the poor old veteran who is begging at the front door and then come in and threaten Martha and Joan trying to force him to change back into the time Lord, because that's what they need him as the doctor for some reason. And they they've deduced that the they've overheard that he's the doctor because Martha has been babbling about it in public. And and they there is so it's like, OK, here's your romantic interest, doctor. Here's your companion, doctor. We're going to kill one or the other if you don't help us. Right. Uh, and it was kind of interesting how they put it like, you know, which one of them do you want us to kill? Maid or matron, friend or lover, your choice. And uh, it's a very interesting ca- counterpoint there. Maid or matron uh, in, and all that. We also in this episode have a, a kind of a tie in to the ongoing Martha soap opera when she realizes he's fallen in love for Joan Redfern. And it's like you had to go and fall in love with a human. And it, and it wasn't me. <laughs> yes, I know the, the the soap opera there. Well, he already fell in love with a human. She's just gone now. So there you're competing with with a lost woman. So any other points? So then we are to be continued to, to next week to the next episode, Family Blood. So any other points that i missed here that you guys want to bring up okay so uh so this was b2 we continued folks where we're gonna pick this up uh where we leave off here at the next episode so before we do that i want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of dr who um and today we're thinking by name Corey l jerry s armand p Teresa c and susan b through their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give, they make it possible for us to create the secrets of Doctor Who and all the shows we do at SQPN. And if you'd like to join them, you can visit sqpn.com slash give. So tell us what you thought of this first part of the 10th Doctor story, Human Nature. You can let us know by going to sqpn.com and leaving a comment there or going to the Secrets of Doctor Who Facebook page and leave a comment there. Leave some feedback uh, or send us an email. I'm sorry. Leave us some, uh, an email at Doctor Who at sqpn.com. And uh, you, we'll be back next time when we'll be discussing Family of Blood, the second part of this two-parter. Until then, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of Doctor Who. Thanks, Tom. And Father Corey Stika, thank you as well. Well, thank you, Tom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to the secrets of Doctor Who on StarQuest. And remember, permission to give Latimer a beating, sir. Right. This is good. 